Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. Nice to have you with us today. We know that broccoli and most of the other cruciferous vegetables are very good to prevent cancer, or if you have cancer, to use them. Of course, eating them is the best thing to do, but then if you really want to get the most potency, you'll take a supplement that is taking the active ingredients and concentrated it. I'll give you an example. It's very good to eat oranges and grapefruits. But in the average orange, you might get anywhere from 30 to 50 milligrams of vitamin C. If you want to help yourself, let's say, strengthen your immune system, you're going to be looking at somewhere between two to 5,000 milligrams a day. If you're sick, depending upon the disease, for example, if someone came to me and they had a serious cancer, ovarian cancer, breast cancer, colorectal cancer, I'm going to be starting 25,000 milligrams a day and going up from there intravenous. So everything is about the concentration of what is needed. Years ago, I was thinking about why is it that we're able to reverse disease in some people. I was looking at the orthodox model, and I didn't see this happening to the degree and percentage that I believe it should have. With as many brilliant minds, millions, working in the area of public health, the scientists, physicians, nurses, why aren't we doing better? We should be vibrantly healthy based upon what we're spending about $3.6 trillion this year on health care. But we're not doing better. We're getting sicker, more heart disease, more cancers. Unless you're one of those individuals really working on your health, you're really allowing disease to manifest slowly, but every day you get a day closer to where it's going to tip. And then I took a look at what I had done first with myself. Now, I had never drank or smoked or done drugs. And I said, okay, I'm a marathoner, ultra-marathoner, a vegan. I take a lot of supplements. What will happen to my immune system if I push it? Can I get myself to where my immune system begins to break down? And it's not the immune system breaks down. It's your diminishment of your vital life force, your chi. And that actually happened. It took me a year to rebuild it back though everything else in the body tested completely normal. So I began to learn about subtle energies and that if you took the sugar from an apple and you put it into a teaspoon and you refined it as high fructose, it's different in how the body utilizes it versus if you ate the apple with a natural occurring sugar in it. I also started to see that it's different when you're taking something in its natural form versus its synthetic counterpart. For example, vitamin C from natural sources and vitamin C synthetically made. Something was missing. And what was missing, I felt, was the vital life force. Therefore, I created a diet that I began to use on terminally ill patients at Fogga Hospital with first some success, then substantial success, including a former editor of mine in a major publishing company, Reverser In-Stage Pancreatic Cancer. She was there... Um, in their hospice wing to die. She went on to live a vibrant life. And behind all this, I came up with a concept. The concept, I'm not going to go into it now, but it's important when you hear some of the things I'm going to share with you today. I call it the laws of compensation, meaning they're natural laws within nature that whatever is dominant at any given time in your life and has been for a period of time will then become the dominant go-to energy. So if you're around negative people, toxic people, angry, bitter people, you're going to be far more vulnerable in the EPA, the environment around you, genetic, your genes, to take on other people's energy. And hence, we frequently are very similar in some of our attitudes and behavior to the, the crowd, the larger group. Now, this is not a moral statement that they're good or bad. It's just you, you can frequently become that. And that's why I think it's so important to maintain your, your critical independent thought. So let's just say if you work in a law office and you see that billing is what gives you the big money and in time, the more you bill, the more important you are to the other partners. You become a junior partner and a full partner. 
But if you didn't bill a lot, if you only bill based upon what you felt was ethically right, you may then, depending upon the law firm, not get much advantage or advancement. So one day you wake up and you realize everything you're doing is about manipulating billing of hours. And because that becomes what you're doing, you're manipulating a situation against someone else's advantage to your own. That becomes the dominant energy. Do you really think that a person is going to turn off that dominant manipulative energy in any other part of their life? It's there. It's like a person that's a liar. They're not going to stop lying because they're around other people they have yet to lie to. They're just going to be more conscious not to get caught. So we have the, I believe, now I'm only going to give the overview on this. I believe that right now we are facing some catastrophic consequences to losing our sense of moral, ethical, spiritual, humanistic values that we should all be sharing together, irrespective of the uniqueness of our ethnicity or culture or family or social backgrounds. In effect, we're not just dumbing down. That's easy to see. We're losing our sense of true history or history in proper context, but we're also becoming highly divisive. And that's because the dominant energy, go back to what I said originally about health, the dominant energy is almost negative all the time. Watch the news, read the papers, it's negative. As a result, we can become an extension of that negativity. We began then to look for negativity to reinforce our own cynical uh, approaches to life. So in order to change a disease, from my personal experience, you could have a different experience. And why I've had such success reversing people's disease is because I create a different dominant energy and help the person appreciate that every choice now has to be one that they want and need in a good way. So instead of being sad, you can be happy. Instead of being angry, you can be more introspective and thoughtful. Instead of gossiping, you can say something nice about people. Always aware that your opposite is always present, and one or the other is going to, one or the other, these polar opposites are going to dominate any given moment in your life, and it can change. So why not put things in our life, our mind, our body, our environment, our body politic, our social connections, our friendships, that enhance everyone and everything? So that's where I came up with the concept of the dominant energy should always be one that is positive and compensates, and then that becomes what you're going to act on, and that then is no longer what you're going to, which is the negative. Anyhow, um, more on that, but when it comes to something like, and I'll go back to this now, University of Heidelberg in Germany published an article on aging about broccoli. We knew that broccoli could help with cancer, both prevention and in treatment. But in treatment, you have to compensate. You have to give a lot of it. If you're drinking juices, a glass of juice a day is great. But if you have heart disease and your arteries are clogged, I might have you drink 12 glasses of juice a day. Concentrate. So you have to compensate for the disease you want to dominate meaning you're going to put a dominant energy that's going to crush the diseasing process so your whole mind changes, your cells change, your DNA change, and the energy changes. Little it might not be easy to understand at this moment, but in time, you'll see how these pieces, and mind you, all I do is I share pieces of puzzles each day. But almost always what comes from something positive are other positive waves going out. For example... We now know that broccoli extends the lifespan in this research model. Now, that's really important. So not only does this family of the sulfurophane derive from broccoli, not only is it good for cancer, but it's good for your immune system and it's good for your cells. And that means you're going to live a longer life. Now, when you take another piece of the puzzle, resveratrol, from grapes, that's good. You can eat grapes and you should because grapes have enormously powerful healing energy. You can add some red wine and it's the alcohol is not good, but the resveratrol, which is very small, five milligrams maybe, that's not going to do a whole lot. But if you 
did not drink other alcohol, and that's what you chose to drink, and you made your own homemade, homemade fermentation of it, which a lot of people do, you're going to flood your body with prebiotics, and that's going to be good. And that's why people in Mediterranean countries frequently like to make their own wine, and they have that and grapes. So the combination of the two gives them a really good advantage in anti-aging. But when you take resveratrol 200 milligrams or 500 milligrams, now you're, you're compensating. You're really upping the game. Same way with uh, if you took turmeric, that's good. But if you took curcumin, the active ingredient turmeric, that's 10 times better. If you took 50 milligrams, that's good. But if you took 500 milligrams, that's even better. And if you had cancer, I'm going to be looking at 5,000 milligrams. So again, you have to compensate in life, in all things. It's like why you should make your bed and just make it meticulously, just like a person in the armed forces will make it each morning. And someone said, why are you, why you focused on making a bed? What, what's the big deal about making a bed? Because if you start off the day with a focus and discipline, a mindfulness that this bed is going to represent everything else you're going to do that day, and you're going to do it at the high end of your mind, you could drop a quarter and it'll bounce back. Then every other thing you do, just remember, I'm going to do everything else today <clears throat> as if I was making my bed. So you don't have clutter. You have organization. You, In fact, you unclutter your life. Things flow smoother. And they're done at a much higher quality. Just something to think about. So anyhow, that's good news. So now we know that taking broccoli will extend your lifespan because of the chemical in it, sulforaphane, S-U-L-F-O-R-A-P-H-A-N-E. It prolongs the lifespan and increases the health span of the C. elegans through the inhibition of what is called a DAF2 insulin IGF-1 signaling. That's just a biochemical way of showing that once it goes in the body, it goes to work on your behalf. Whereas if you had a hamburger, <clears throat> every single thing in that hamburger goes in your body, and your body now is stressed trying to deal with the toxic effects. If someone says something nice to you, your body and mind are going to deal with it in one way that is de-stressing and positive and endorphin-inducing. Someone yells and screams at you, demeans you, uh, tries to make you feel bad about yourself, suddenly everything else goes into a stress mode. You see, words count. How they're said count. University of California at Irvine has a, by the way, I'm a little, my throat is a little hoarse today simply because I did nine hours of counseling nonstop yesterday. <clears throat> so oral N-acetylglucosamine is now found to be neuroprotective in demyelinating diseases. So if you have MS, this University of Irvine study shows that the demyelinization plays an important role in cognitive development and or if you're myelinating, it plays an important role. If you're demyelinating, if you're taking away that, then you end up with multiple sclerosis and you end up promoting permanent neuroaxonal damage. So N-acetylglucosamine N-A-C-E-T-Y-L-G-L-U-C-O-S-A-M-I-N-E. So something new, another piece to the puzzle. And finally, from McGill University up in Quebec comes a study about happiness really does come for free. What do I mean? I've had a lot of friends who are very poor. And still, one of them still is. I've known this guy since I arrived in New York City. We're best friends. He's like a brother. And, uh, but he's always broke. And, uh, because he's in a tough field. He's very talented. But, uh, not a lot of work. Nor has there been. But he honored the career instead of just making a living. So he's just learned to be very happy with having less. Other friends of mine have been very successful before the computers and hedge funds and equity partners. They made it the old-fashioned way. And no matter how much money they made, they were never happy. Not true happiness. There was always something missing. And we would have many conversations about what's missing. Why can't you just 
be happy. And they couldn't figure it out. Well, economic growth is often prescribed as a sure way of increasing the well-being of people, especially in low-income countries and low-income people in the United States. But a study led by McGill and the Institute of e and how people rate their subjective well-being in societies where money plays a minimal role and which are not usually included in global happiness surveys. They found that the majority of people reported remarkably high levels of happiness. This was especially true in communities with the lowest levels of monetization, where citizens reported a degree of happiness compared to that found in Scandinavian countries, which typically rate highest in the world. The results suggest that high levels of subjective well-being can be achieved with minimal money. And that challenges the perspective that economic growth is everything because almost everything in the United States is based upon make the money to have a standard of living. The standard of living then allows you to see I'm enjoying a certain quality of life. I can buy a certain car, television, have a certain size home or rent. I can travel a certain place. My children go to certain universities, private versus uh, public. And I can f afford more clothes, different types of clothes. I can spend more on things that may not have the, the value in what I'm buying, but it's perceived that there are more value because my zip code is here versus here. Okay. Now look at how many people are caught into that. And then you start to realize that we are a high consumption society because we have this false notion that the more we consume, the more we have, the better our position within a society and we should be happy. Now, if you're talking about dire poverty, getting people out of dire poverty and having the resource to do it, that definitely makes a difference. If you have someone that doesn't have to spend all day homeless or worry about how they're going to feed themselves and their children, yeah, money, money makes a difference. But once you attain a certain level, like a working middle-class background, more money doesn't equal more happiness. In fact, just the opposite. And that frequently is because we overvalue things, stuff. And we frequently undervalue the quality of our relationships, our friendships, and free time and what we can do with it. Something to think about. In fact, a week ago, Sunday, I did a webinar. It was packed. I'm sorry for the thousands of people who were not able to get on. We had... As Glenn, my webmaster, said, I, he maxed out three times our bandwidth, so that's that. But in any case, one of the things, it's now you can download it, by the way, getting off the grid. It was six hours long. <laughs> my voice was a little challenged the next day as well. And everything on there was a piece of a puzzle explained in proper context. And then it was for the person to put the pieces together. And then also... Uh, with that, there's like a 32 pages of detailed information on books, on RVs, on which ones, if you're choosing to live on the road for any period of time, on best places to live, etc. And I, even this last one chart we put up, it shows you that cities most likely had the most mosquitoes to be the driest and be in droughts, to be risky of flooding, things that you wouldn't think about even made a chart of the best and worst cities in America for those. Anyhow, um, it's there f for anybody. But the point was that when we look around at economic growth, I'm suggesting everyone get into the idea that don't look for standard of living, look for quality of life. A quality of life does not have to be with a standard of living. And therefore, you can downsize and be happier. Less stress, less money you have to earn, more free time. So I think that's a very important study for McGill University. We are 20 minutes into our program. We're going to take a break. And when we come back from the break, I'm going to follow this up with, and then I'm going to take some calls. Uh, we have a lot of guests this week coming in. I'm going to take uh, time to have you hear what one of the smartest people I've ever heard. I met him. I was on tour uh, and met him while I was on tour. 
and he was just remarkable. What happens when you only pursue pleasure? And by the way, he gave that lecture, I believe, in the 1960s. What happens when you only pursue pleasure? Oh, and before I forget it, I came across an archive box. I'm, I'm building this new um, archive library for you. It'll have over 20, I believe, 25,000 hours of broadcasting, interviews with some of the most unique minds in the world, Buckminster Fuller, um, Pearl Buck, Norman Mailer, Rene Dubow. I mean, thousands of unique minds, plus great information on every topic. It's a five stages, and we're through the, just about entering the stage where we actually watch the films. It's just cataloging everything and putting them in order. Now we... I bring in people in a couple of weeks to watch them. And then all this will go up on the Internet as a free service to help you. But I found a huge number of films, and they were never released, about a hundred of them. And the reason I found out that they were never released is because I was on television stations all across the country, and then they changed the format. I was at the end stage of using the old format, and that no, 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 now you have to have this format. And I didn't have the money to buy those cameras, so I just left it be. And I had all these that had never been aired, about 100. We've now put 67 of them up on PRN.FM, and we're also putting them up on my new website, GaryNall.com, which is there and working. We're adding to it. Um, and. These are some of the finest lectures. I just sat and watched 10 of them over the last week. These are some of the most powerful lectures you think they were done today. They are absolutely timeless. So there's a free. They're there. You can go up to prn.fm, go down, and you'll see motivational lectures and select them and watch them. Okay? It's free. It's a gift. So enjoy them. We'll be back in a moment with... What happens when you only pursue pleasure? Vocational guidance of students. They come to me and say, well, uh, we're getting out of college and we haven't the faintest idea what we want to do. So I always ask the question, what would you like to do if money were no object? What, how would you really enjoy spending your life? Well, it's so amazing as a result of our kind of educational system, crowds of students say, well, we'd like to be painters, we'd like to be poets, we'd like to be writers, but as everybody knows, you can't earn any money that way. Or another person says, well, I'd like to live an out-of-doors life and ride horses. I say, do you want to teach in a riding school? Uh, let's go through with it. What do you want to do? When we finally got down to something which the individual says he really wants to do, I will say to him, you do that. And uh, forget the money, uh, because if you say that getting the money is the most important thing, you will spend your life completely wasting your time. You'll be doing things you don't like doing in order to go on living, that is to go on doing things you don't like doing, which is stupid. Better to have a short life that is full of what you like doing than a long life spent in a miserable way. And after all, if you do really like what you're doing, it doesn't matter what it is, you can eventually turn it, uh, you could eventually become a master of it. It's the only way to become a master of something, to be really with it. And then you'll be able to get a good fee for whatever it is. So uh, don't, don't worry too much, that, that's, uh, everybody's, uh, somebody's interested in everything. And anything you can be interested in, you'll find others who are. But it's absolutely stupid to spend your time doing things you don't like in order to go on spending things you don't like, doing things you don't like, and to teach your children to follow in the same track. See, what we're doing is we're bringing up children and educating them to live the same sort of lives we're living in order that they may justify themselves and find satisfaction in life by bringing up their children, to bring up their children to do the same thing, so it's all wretch and no vomit. It never gets there. And so, 
Therefore, it's so important to consider this question, what do I desire? Well, when we answer that question in a naive way, we figure out that we want a desire, uh, what we want is to control everything, to create girls that don't grow old, apples that don't rot, clothes that never wear out, conveyances that get from one place to another instantly so we don't have to wait, power available to do anything that you could conceive and do it just instantly like that get this funny technological omnipotence. But if you take time out to think about that and really go into it with your full strength of imagination and find out whether that's where you want to be, you will soon see that's not what you want. Because the moment you have a situation where you are really in control of things, that is to say, in which the future is almost completely predictable. You will see, as I said last night, that a completely predictable future is already the past. You've had it. And that's not what you wanted. You want a surprise. And you don't know what that's going to be, because obviously it wouldn't be a surprise if you did. You want a pleasant surprise. Like you say, what sort of a surprise would be pleasant? And you can't really answer that. Because you know, if there are to be such things as pleasant surprises, there must also be unpleasant surprises. There must be rude shocks. So you're like somebody taking a, one of those wishing well boxes, you know, tubs, you know, where you fish in and you bring out a package. And you don't know whether you've got a dead rat in it or a new camera. <laughs> and that's the way, that's, that seems to be the thing that really excites people. But quite certainly there comes out of this inquiry a feeling of real disillusionment with the ideal of power. To be in power, to be in control is not something that any sensible person wants. Now, you may say that's shirking responsibility. That if you were a really responsible person, you would go out for power and try to use power to the best possible advantage for the benefit of all. All right, what would be the benefit of all? Ask them, what do you want me to do with this power? I'm dictator. What would you like me to do? Well, nobody knows because they haven't thought it through. They think of all sorts of short-range things and they are largely conflicting and confusing because they're not well thought out. But again, when it finally comes down to it, nobody wants to be God. Now, I think that this is the greatest possible lesson for the Western world to learn because we are so hung up on the idea of power, of control, of being able to make everything go the right way and we've never thought it through. When you get control of it, what are you going to do with it? And so when you think things through like that, you understand you do not want power. You don't want to control everything. And therefore, in the exploration of what you want, you get to the point where having all pleasures at your command, and they pall, and you think of new sources of pleasure, and eventually you get like the ancient Romans who had all these mad crowds of barbarians who had to go every Saturday to the Colosseum for a show that really had to surpass everything because they had public baths, they had prostitutes, they had every kind of luxury. But when they went to see one of the big shows that people like Nero put on. They would have, for example, floats circling the Colosseum, all full of slave girls from distant parts of the Mediterranean, garlanded with flowers and waving at the crowd and going innocently around. And the next minute, they would release wild lions into the arena to eat up all the slave girls. And they got a big sadistic kick out of that. 
Because you see, pursuing pleasure beyond a certain place takes you into what the Buddhists call the Naraka world, that is to say the hells. When you have explored pleasure to its ultimate limit, the only thing you can get a kick out of is pain. And so naturally, you descend from the Deva world at the top of the wheel to the Naraka world at the bottom, where it shows all these beings in, in states of torture. You get to the hell world as a result of not knowing what you want. As a result of thoughtless pursuit of pleasure, which ends you eventually in the pursuit of pain. So when you're in the hell well, that's where you want to be. So when I ask, I go right down to the question, which we started with, what do I want? The answer is, I don't know. When Bodhidharma was asked, who are you? Which is another form of the same question. He said, I don't know. Planting flowers to which the butterflies come. Bodhidharma says, I know not. I don't know what I want. Well, when you don't know what you want, you've re reached the state of desirelessness. When you really don't know. But you see, there's a, there's a beginning stage of not knowing and there's an ending stage of not knowing. In the beginning stage, you don't know what you want because you haven't thought about it or you've only thought superficially. And then when you, somebody forces you to think about it and go through and say, yeah, I think I'd like this, I think I'd like that, I think I'd like the other, that's the middle stage. And then you get beyond that. Say, is that what I really want? In the end you say, no, I don't think that's it. <laughs> I might be satisfied with it for a while and I wouldn't turn my nose up at it, but it's not really what I want. Why don't you really know what you want? Two reasons that you don't really know what you want. Number one, you have it. Number two, you don't know yourself because you never can. The Godhead is never an object of its own knowledge. Just as a knife doesn't cut itself, fire doesn't burn itself, Light doesn't illumine itself. It's always an endless mystery to itself. I don't know. And this I don't know, uttered in the infinite interior of the spirit, this I don't know is the same thing as I love, I let go, I don't try to force or control. It's the same thing as humility. Any time you, as it were, voluntarily let up control, in other words, cease to cling to yourself, you have an access of power. Because you're wasting energy all the time in self-defense trying to manage things, trying to force things to conform to your will. The moment you stop doing that, that wasted energy is available. And therefore, you are, in that sense, having that energy available, you are one with the divine principle. You have the energy. When you're trying, however, to act as if you were God, that is to say, you don't trust anybody and you're the dictator and you have to keep everybody in line, you lose the divine energy. Because what you're doing is simply defending yourself. So then, the principle is, the more you give it away, the more it comes back. <clears throat> Very insightful thoughts, just as timeless today. Also, one of our great thinkers today is Chris Hedges. And he wrote something, I'm just going to share a short piece of it here. Quote, the towns in Maine where my relatives came from had been devastated by the closures of mills and factories. There is little meaningful work. There is a smoldering anger caused by legitimate feelings of betrayal and entrapment. They live, like most working-class Americans, lives of quiet desperation. 
This anger is often expressed in negative and destructive ways, but I have no right to dismiss them as irredeemable. Think of that for a moment, and then tie it in to what you just heard. People who are living in a hedonic cycle, a hedonistic cycle, at the, at the beginning of that, it's a desire for pleasure. Now, if that pleasure is not demeaning and is not destructive to yourself or others, for example, writing or listening to a poem or a concert or a prayer, that's pleasurable and that's meaningful in our life. A great meal, pleasurable. Take it to the extreme where you're engaged in some sadomasochistic process. That's destructive. That's what he was referring to. But let's say it's not sexual. Let's say that your hedonicism is based upon power over others. Therefore, you have to have a political position or corporate position or financial position or a celebrity position, something that differentiates you from everyone else, that the perception is that they must defer to you in all manner because you are above them. So we have a society now that has just brought us under where we should be because of the separation of people by races, by cultures, by age, and, uh, and by education, etc. And what Chris Hedges is saying is, I came from a poor place. Good people who, when they were betrayed by everyone in office, Democrat, Republican, Unionists included, they finally rebelled. And some people rebel by taking drugs. Other people rebel by just being so depressed because there's no work or not enough to pay for any standard of living that they just work it against themselves. That's the destruction he was talking about, where a person, the anger expresses in negative and destructive ways, both externally and internally. But he says also, and this is what's important because there was a person earlier uh, in our 20th century, a man named Campbell, who came from a working class background, and he and he lived in a family where there was prejudice, but he chose not to condemn the people, but to condemn the prejudice and try to find where it came from. Would that prejudice still exist if those people were dealt with equitably? A friend of mine, his name is also Gary, he's older, and he has been working diligently for decades trying to bring work to the Palestinian um, people uh, with a belief that if you give people a quality of life where they can work, earn an income, pay for their medicine, schooling, clothes, where they're not under siege, then they're far less susceptible to being influenced by radicalized voices that will always take the wrong approach to being aggrieved. I believe he is absolutely correct, but unfortunately, all forms of politics stand in the way of allowing people to have what they need. In the United States, it's no different. If you're going to have a condemnation and imprisonments and arrests of people because of the circumstances in which they live, it is not right until you also examine, can you change the circumstances? Can you de-ghettoize the people? Can you give everybody an opportunity without consideration for their economic or cultural or ethnic backgrounds? If you can do that, then watch crime drop. Watch, watch people be happy again with themselves and others. That's what I believe is, this is about. And now you look at the culture society. It prides itself at being the far end of this hedonistic capacity with power to bring pain to other people. When you're canceled, that's pain. When your reputations are destroyed like Wikipedia does, that's pain. When you're reading the New York Times that will follow in the mainstream agenda and act as his official spokesperson for 5G and vaccines and COVID, well, that brings pain to everyone else because they want to punish you if you are against them, like they have with Robert Kennedy Jr. This whole can culture, can the cancel culture, is a witch hunt. And who are the people behind it? According to his hedges, these are the self-appointed moral arbiters of speech. And 
This has become a boutique activism of a liberal class that lacks the courage and the organizational skills to challenge the actual centers of power. What are we not challenging in America? What are the marches not doing? You don't see the marches by any group against the military-industrial complex, the prison system, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, the intelligence agencies. When was the last time there was a demonstration against the National Security Agency, the CIA, Homeland Security? No. No. These are the people who spy on us. They're watching us, photographing us, monitoring the population every second of every day. When, would, when did we have the marches against the fossil fuel industry and the political and economic system captured by the oligarchs? When were the oligarchs, like any of the oligarchs, take the top 10, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, for example, uh, Elon Musk. When were these people targeted? When did the truth about how they made their money and what impact they've had in a negative way upon society, when was any of that revealed? Yesterday, the New York Times had a front page praising Bill Gates. Had they asked me, I would have given them different information. It's much easier to turn from these overwhelming battles to take down hapless figures who make verbal gaffes, who, those who fail to speak in the approved language or embrace the approved attitudes of the liberal elites. These purity tests have reached absurd and self-defeating levels, including the inquisitional bloodlust by 150 staff members of the New York Times demanding that management, which had already investigated and dealt with what at most was poor judgment made by the veteran reporter Dan or Don McNeil when he repeated a racist slur in a context about a discussion on race and they forced him out of the paper as if nothing he stood for, nothing he'd ever done, was of, of any merit. That's insane. If you're going to hold that standard that anyone who's ever thought or uttered anything that is inappropriate today, then you would have no one on earth allowed to speak. Too often the targets of the cancel culture are radicals, such as the feminists who run the Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter and who do not admit trans people because most of the girls and women in the shelter, quote, according to Chris Hedges, have been physically assaulted and traumatized by those with male bodies. None of the critics of these feminists spend 10 or 12 hours a day in a shelter taking care of abused girls and women, many of whom were prostituted as children, but fire off screeds to attack them and cut their funding. The cancel culture, as a Canadian feminist, Lee Lakeman, says, is the weaponization of ignorance. The cancel culture was pioneered by the red baiting of the capitalist elites and their shock troops and agencies like the FBI, often through violence, radical movements, and labor unions. Tens of thousands of people in the name of anti-communism were canceled out of the culture. The well-financed Israeli lobby was part of the cancel culture, shutting down critics of the Israeli apartheid state. Now, whether you believe and, and are for the Palestinian or Israeli, and I believe we should be for both, seeking peace for both. Both deserve to live in peace and harmony. And the moment you say the word, suddenly you get the, uh, uh, you get the challenges. As if anything you say, anything that could in any way properly and accurately describe that, that uh, battle that has been going on for a long time, suddenly you're an anti-Semite. That's the cancel, the cancel culture, fueled by the persecution of Julian Assange, the censorship of WikiLeaks, and the Silicon Valley algorithms that steer readers away from content, including content showing the dangers of corporate and imperial power. In the end, the bullying will be used by social media platforms, which are integrated into the state security and surveillance organs, not to promote, as its supporters argue, civility but ruthlessly silenced dissidents and intellectuals and artists, independent journalism. Once you control what people say, you control what they think. And just keep in mind, the cancel culture is embraced by corporate media platforms where, as Glenn Greenwald writes, teams of journalists at three of the most influential corporate media outlets, CNN's media reporters, Brian Stelzer and Oliver Darcy, NBC's disinformation space with Ben Collins and Brandy uh, Zdarnsky, and the tech reporters at the New York Times like Mike Isaac, Kevin Ross, 
Ashir Frankel, devote the bulk of their journalism, or what we call journalism, to searching for online spaces where they believe speech and conduct rules are being violated, flagging them, and then pleading that punitive action must be taken, ban them, censor them, content regulation. So just keep in mind that's where we're at. And corporations know these moral purity tests are, for us, self-defeating. They know that by making the cancel culture legitimate, and for this reason, I oppose this. If you have something to say and I find it wrong, then bring it forward and let us discuss it. And that way, let the public decide. Don't just assume because you're not on the right side of a particular issue that somehow what you say should be canceled. And shouldn't we be measured people by their history? Oh, is there someone in power today that cheated in law school and got caught, lied about their grades and got caught, plagiarized their speeches and got caught, lied about their GPA and got caught, lied about the scholarships and got caught? Yeah. But don't cancel that person. No. Cancel those people who are saying the right thing, are being honest, and looking for the truth. That is not being done now. I'm Gary Nall. I want your thoughts on this. The dangers of a cancel culture where free speech is being denied because you realize that the people on Pacifica stations, not all by any means, but those who still believe in freedom of speech, uh, they're, they're, they're being canceled, which means that people will no longer be supporting them except the group that still listens. So, and the writers, Glenn Greenwald, uh, Abby Martin, Max Blumenthal, yeah, canceled. And who should be brought to America to punish them for the rest of their life in prison? The Biden administration, with the full support of Congress and the backing of the media. And what did he do? He showed corruption. He showed malfeasance in Hillary Clinton and, and, and Barack Obama and Joe Biden and others. So for telling the truth, we publicly flog and dismember an honest person. What does that tell us about we the people? Those are my thoughts. I'd like to hear yours. 888-874-4888. But also, I was just told we have a few people on the line, and that's good. These two people uh, were in the anti-aging study, and we have a new anti-aging study coming up two weeks um, down in Texas. It'll be the last two weeks of April. This is a very advanced anti-aging. In fact, the good news is I just confirmed yesterday that I have some scientists and physicians coming, and uh, they were so impressed with the last three we've done, and I'm adding some new things in, and they're going to be there, and I've asked two of them to give us discussions on the next state of anti-aging and healing, which is harmonics. I won't go into more of it now, but boy, we're going to be going into that and giving a lot of insights from some of the world leader in that, how you harmonize the cells, energies. Anyhow, that's, uh, that's a lot of the, you have to have a background in quantum physics to really understand all this, but it'll all be made in lay language. Anyhow, we're going to help some people who want to slow down and even reverse the aging process because in the process of doing that, you're going to get your immune system strong, you're going to be healthier, live a longer life. And hopefully, since my lectures are on happiness, I'll be doing about 30 lectures on being a happy person no matter what's happening in your life. So we have Susan on. Hi, Susan. Gary. Wow, what a program. Was that, that wasn't Gore Vidal, was it? No. In the first, it somehow, it, who was it? Because I, I didn't hear the name. Alan Watts. Alan Watts is Alan Watts. Wow, that was really terrific. Um, and what's made me really think about some of the things that had that we did in the anti-aging and the things that, that really ended up being so important to me. Um, but what would you like me to talk about? Just the outcome. We only have five minutes. The outcome. Okay. Um, well, I think that I think that it was quite it was amazing. I mean, I I went in basically after two months of being able to do nothing because I'd had pneumonia. And I 
I just went from being able to practice, you know, do minimum amount of of everything. From, for example, on these ropes, I went from 20 reps to 20 minutes. Uh, on the climber, I went from uh, just a minute or two to 20. Um, uh, on the resistance bike, I went from maybe half an hour to four hours. And this was this was in two months, and I, you know, I, it was it was extraordinary. But I think that that the thing above all, though, is the the, the journaling was so important. Um, but I think that the, the takeaway for me was what you talked about about forty five percent of what happens is all these things: the juicing, the meditating, the exercising, the eating vegan, the supplements. But the, the real change has to come through, through really looking at your belief system and replacing the negativity, the old tapes, et cetera, and, you know, basing it on the positive ones about who you want to be and where you want to go. And that, of course, is the hardest part. Um, but this was an extraordinary experience for me. And one of the, the things that, that I just loved above all was the fact of being there in this, extra, this extraordinary place that you have made that is, uh, it's an homage to nature. Uh, it, 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 I, just sitting and listening to the wind and hearing the birds and walking in on the paths through the roses, uh, just the, the care and the attention, and, and it really made one able to go deep inside and take a look and try to figure out where 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 one wanted to go. Well, thank you. I appreciate you sharing those insights. I know you came very weak and tired. You had gone through a major illness, and I was able to see at the end you were able to do a marathon. That was remarkable, and uh, and that you're in vital health. So thank you very much, Susan. And by the way, she's very self-effacing and quiet but she's an outstanding artist. Her work has appeared around the world, and she was chairman of the Department of Art at a very prestigious New York uh, learning institution, and her and uh, she was helping some people learn how to be artists in the process, though we had a couple other great artists there, Elaine Ryan and, and John Q. Uh, before we go to the other person, we're coming up when WBI must... Uh, say goodbye so they can finish the last five minutes of the show with news, but I want to mention this, something brand new. Um, in two weeks from Sunday, that's two, two Sundays from now at noon, I'm doing another webinar because there is now a new film, uh, The Cost of Denial. It is a phenomenal film. Um, it's done by a group of scientists for independent investigative journalism. And what I've been telling you in bits and pieces over the years about, you know, helping people reverse AIDS, 1,200 people got healthy, none died, 18 completely seroconverted, and that whole long journey and all the other scientists in the world who are trying to do, and physicians do, a healthier healing process to help people, and they were all attacked, their careers destroyed, like Peter Duisberg, journalists, gay journalists were attacked. Uh, by the establishment, and the person heading all that was Anthony Fauci, and along with Robert Gallo. Well, now the story is being told. And by the way, the film is very upbeat because we have millions of people today with AIDS and HIV infection, so it can it's a story that can help save lives and also learn some very powerful lessons. There's going to be a whole um, panel afterwards, and people from different walks of life who can contribute to that. So I'm going to thank the scientists for the, uh, the uh, Society for Independent Investigative Journalism for doing all this work. Yeoman Shop found some letters and articles I didn't know existed. So good for them. So if you want to join me in a webinar, go to garyandall.com or prn.fm or and you'll see how to get on. And remember, this will be packed. So if you want to join me for what's a brand new documentary, I mean a really powerful documentary, and the messages in this documentary can help every single person listening right now. Everyone here can benefit from it. 
then you won't want to miss this. And uh, this is unique because this is proof positive that Wikipedia is wrong, proof positive Fauci and Gallo and them were wrong, proof positive the entire medical industrial complex was wrong. I mean, and I'm not the one saying this. Uh, they found all these people, medical doctors, scientists, journalists. Wow, what a job that has been done. And you'll be able to see it. And uh, then afterwards, an in-depth panel, and then you can add your questions. And they'll also be addressed. It'll be a powerful afternoon, a very inspiring one. So it's called The Cost of Denial is the film, the documentary. This is its only showing worldwide. It's all going to happen on one day. And we're even getting some alternative sites put together. Now, we're not going to give you any more information, except you'll be signed up and then on the day that we're going to show it, you'll be informed where. Because I know of all the agent provocateurs that listen to this program, and they would they would delist us, as they did RF Kennedy spent a couple months promoting this very important big uh, uh, press conference they were going to do on, on, the, on a Zoom, and three hours before they canceled it. Not Kennedy didn't cancel it. The people maintaining the server canceled it. So we're not going to allow them to do this because this can save millions of lives. All right, so go to my brand new documentary. It's one chance to see it. So go to GaryAnall.com, the new website, or go to PRN.FM. Or if you can't do it that way, just call my number at 646-926-5422, 646 and Jessica will help you. Now, if you want to uh, come to the webinar, call Luann at not the webinar, but the anti-aging, because a lot of good stuff happens. I mean, positive stuff that will change your life. 903-881-7008. 903-881-7008. Now, who else do we have on the line? Rich. Hi, Rich. Your turn. Thank you so much, Gary. A pleasure to talk to you again. Um, I know we don't have much time, so I'm going to be as concise as possible with the information. But uh, in addition to the physical stuff, which I was expecting, but, you know, that was miraculous in and of itself, how quickly I saw my body transform in the, you know, the two weeks at the retreat and stuff that had taken 30 and 40 years to accumulate just, to, you know, disappear so rapidly and so happy. You know, every day I look in the mirror now, but much more important than that to me uh, is the, uh, it challenged me to think, uh, things that I just, you know, went along doing day in and day out and didn't question. And all of a sudden it was like turning on a light and looking at, I remember in particular, uh, from one of your many lectures, you probably had more than 30 in the two weeks we were there. Um, you said, uh, that everything matters. You, you started out by saying in that lecture that there's a book that uh, don't sweat the small stuff, but you have a different view that everything matters. And uh, I really took that on and looked, looked at that in my life uh, since getting back from the retreat, too. Um, and it just opened up a whole world of opportunities for me and a, a way to live my life differently. Um, to give you some concrete examples, um, I work in the environmental, you know, I'm passionate about the environment. I work in it uh, as a career. And I wasn't looking at where my money was invested, you know, in the banks and in the uh, funds that uh, were doing just the opposite of what I'd committed my life to, that we're spending money polluting. Uh, so it has been, you know, look at shifting all of my assets. And, and, and that's just, you know, a simple example that never would have been on my radar screen, but really just opening my eyes about everything I buy, everything that I do, that it matters. And uh, that provided a world of uh, a whole new world for me since, uh, since October. Remember, you can't change your reality till you change your perception of the existing reality. So I could give you all the supplements and foods and juices, as, as Susan mentioned. But if you don't have a mindset that understands how the view you have of life and the world around you makes a difference, you're just going to keep doing more of the same. And then you'll fight yourself. You'll fight, well, should I, should I not? And you won't be that person waking up in the morning and making their bed and being proud of how they make it. And then that follows everything else you do that day. So I did 53 lectures, 53, 
on in two weeks. Remember, I was doing them on the road in the morning before we go out in the afternoon, different times. I just did a lot of lectures because you never know which lecture will be the key that opens up a person's mindset. For you, it was when I said that everything counts. And yes, you are right. The book, which was very popular, uh, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, in my world, is just the opposite. Every small thing that is not addressed and understood and dealt with will accumulate until one day you get a blocked artery and or you're broke or you've spent too much time away from the essence of a quality relationship, quality time together, in which case then the jeopardy is that you're going to lose a relationship because you did not nurture it. It was a flower you never you never fertilized. You never gave it light and water. So that was an important lesson you learned. Thank you for calling in. I appreciate it. We're out of time, everyone. And I look forward to sharing more on tomorrow's program. Have a nice day.